Hey, baseball fans, this is Derek Van Riper. Now that spring training games are underway, opening day is just a few weeks away. Eno Saris and I have been getting ready for the season all winter on Rates and Barrels. Whether you're a seasoned fantasy player, a baseball stats junkie, or just someone who wants to learn more about the game, join us for four episodes each week this season, including our new Friday live stream with former big leaguer Trevor May. Check out the live stream on Fridays at 1 o'clock Eastern on the Rates and Barrels YouTube channel, or listen to the show wherever you enjoy your podcasts, including the ad-free option on the Athletic app. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70. They're celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. Great stuff going on there with Topps. Thanks for checking us out. If you like the show, please subscribe. Give us a five-star rating wherever you listen. I'm Tim McMaster along with Ken Rosenthal. This is the Monday Mailbag Edition of the Athletic Baseball Show. Every Monday we're here, Ken, answering your questions Uh, And the trade deadline, Ken, is behind us. I know you're resting up. It's one of those weeks where you basically, I know, don't sleep at all. uh, But you look back on it, and man, what a deadline it was. Max Scherzer traded. Jose Barrios traded. Joey Gallo. Trey Turner. All of the Cubs' big names, basically. Rizzo, Brian, Baez, Kimbrell. Overall, they trade eight guys. Ten players who were named All-Stars. I think nine players who played in the All-Star game. So why was the 2021 trade deadline so crazy this year? Tim, the first reason dates back to 2019 when baseball changed how it approached the two trade deadlines and eliminated one of them, the August 31st one, the August waiver period. Remember that when players would pass through waivers, teams could claim them or not, then those players would be available to be traded. That doesn't exist anymore. So your one shot is the July deadline, whether it's the 30th or the 31st. After that, as we know now, no further trades can be made. So that is one contributing factor to this frenzy. And I'll give you two others, too. The fact that this year there were so many players on expiring contracts, good players, who were available, that definitely had an influence on this as well. And Scherzer and the Cubs guys, they all fit into that. And that clearly drove it to an extent. And finally, the fact that two teams, the Cubs and the Nationals, essentially took apart what they had, that was another contributing factor to what became, yes, a frenzy. So you had those two teams going into demolition mode. The Twins, who were supposed to be good, were also sellers. The Rangers sold pretty actively. Not all teams did. The Pirates, yes, they made some trades. The Orioles did not There were some other sellers you thought might do some more things and did not do them. But we just saw, in general, teams be more aggressive. And even in the NL East, this was one surprising thing to me. And it even goes to the Yankees, too. I didn't think the Yankees were in particularly great position to be outright buyers. And I said that, I believe, last week on the podcast. I didn't necessarily think the Braves and Phillies should buy aggressively because they've played so uninspired this season and the same could be said of the Yankees and yet those teams went for it because they felt in the Yankees case that 
certainly a wild card was still within reach. And in the Phillies and Braves cases, they felt that the Mets were catchable, that the NL East race wasn't decided, even though they've essentially been around 500, that somehow something could be done to maybe catch those guys. So a lot of different things went into it. It's never one reason, but that would be my essential summary. Of course, I wrote about this over the weekend as well. And I wrote about the one other thing too that I'm sure a lot of people are wondering about. The report that I had saying that the Padres were close to acquiring Scherzer, that was the day before the deadline. I explained it in my column on Friday, or at least I tried to explain as much as I could. You can't say everything because you have people that talk to you under condition of anonymity. But know this, I was not happy about it. I take this stuff really, really seriously. And when something like that happens, even though I didn't say it was done, the way I wrote it, certainly people could have the expectation that it would be done. It's not something that I take lightly by any stretch of the imagination. It's something that I'll remember a long, long time. Yeah, and I, I know it's it's something that obviously, Ken, you get so many of these right. that, And you said it in your column. You said your goal is to be 100%. I guess... is the ideal, but it's almost impossible to be that. It is, and things happen, and sometimes the mistake is on my end, if this was even a mistake, because I believe it was close at the time I tweeted it. And sometimes it's just a wording thing, and there are all all kinds of things that can happen. But the bottom line is, it is our responsibility to get it right. And yes, we want to be first, and... That's kind of what Twitter is about, right? But at the same time, accuracy is paramount. And when it doesn't happen, at least to the fullest extent, well, that's something I think guys like me should be accountable for. And I tried to be accountable in what I wrote. And if you want to check out what Ken wrote, if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, if you go to theathletic.com slash baseball show, you can get a deal right now, 33% off. So check that out and and see what Ken wrote about about that move and those that news and, and all of that. You know, Ken, we jumped right into this. I didn't even ask you. Are you rested up after the end of the week? Or we're recording this on Sunday. Do you need a little more time? It takes a few days. I'm not <laughs> going to lie, Tim. And the deadline is fun and it's crazy. It's also really difficult to cover. Uh, I'm not going to argue because the, with that because it, there's just so much going on and there's so much in play that it's hard to just keep up, honestly. But at the same time, that trade between Houston and Seattle when Toro walked across the field in a different uniform, these things that happen just are so unusual and so wild that it makes it fun for everybody involved. Yeah, every year there's something unique. This year, maybe more than most. It was a wild one. So many team players right now are on new teams as we head into the final two months of the season. All right, let's move on to the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved in the show next week, we would love you to. And you can hear your own voice on the show if you use the voicemail line. That is 646-543-7072. If you don't want to call us, you can also send us an email, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Uh, we've had a, a ton of good questions this week, so many that some of them were evergreen, and we're actually going to push a few down the road to to next week because they'll still be relevant, and we're focusing mostly, Ken, on the trade deadline and the aftermath, basically, of the trade deadline. We're going to start with the voicemails, and we're going to start with a question about one of the teams that 
wasn't really active. Hello, this is Jacob from Utah. I'm a Colorado Rockies fan, and I was wondering how you felt about their lack of moves at the trade deadline and how long we would need to wait until they become a contender again. Jacob, I felt pretty much like most people did, which was that they had an opportunity to do some things and did not. Trevor Story, potential free agent, just a few months left. Now, I wrote earlier in the week that he's having a bad season by his standards. Offensively, there were concerns about his throwing from the defensive end, and the value that he might have had would not have been what it should have been if he had been playing better. All that said, the Rockies had a choice to trade him or to make him a qualifying offer and get a pick after the first round, probably number 37 or so, which is how they got Trevor Story in the first place. And Bill Schmidt, their interim GM, has been ahead of their drafts for so many years. He's done a great job with it. So I'm sure he's banking on that. And that's fine, but you would have thought that there would have been some opportunity for them to move Trevor Story for greater value than that pick. John Gray, they say they want to sign to an extension. Okay, but given the shortage of starting pitching in the market, they could have gotten something decent for him. Daniel Bard as well. The Rockies are a team right now that are years away from contention, in my opinion, especially in such a strong division. And probably the best strategy for them would have been to collect as much young talent as they could for the assets that they had. They did trade Michael Givens, but that was pretty much it. So I saw it as a missed opportunity. When you look at them coming into the season and the last offseason, just to quick follow up on that, um, a lot of teams traded the deadline because they had, you know, aspirations of contending and it went wrong. And then there's the sale when you try to make the most of it. The Rockies last offseason, looking at their division and seeing what the Padres were, seeing what the Dodgers were. It's hard to believe that they truly felt they had a chance, Ken. I mean, you'd think in the offseason what they could have got for Trevor Story, right? Right, and they also had the Arenado situation hanging over them, and that inevitably led to a trade that didn't occur until February. So, in the opinion of many at the time, they should have traded Story right then. Not as easy to do in February when most teams are set compared to, say, November or December, but one thing that I wrote, and I believe this to be true, they waited too long, and this is what happens. Sometimes when you take the risk of waiting with a player... A down season might happen, which is what happened to Trevor Story. And everyone looks at them and just says, what are they doing? And when that's going on, when that's the perception within the industry, that's not a good thing. All right. Another question, this one uh, about the Yankees trade and the deal uh, for Joey Gallo. It's from Scott Nanny. He says, I realize why MLB wants a trade deadline because it draws interest from fans and creates excitement from some fan bases. However, it seems inherently unfair that a big market team like the Yankees who have a badly constructed roster due to mismanagement can remake their roster on the fly by adding star players while giving up little in return. Case in point, the Joey Gallo trade, the Yankees get Gallo through next season and yet still keep their top three prospects. It seems Texas accepted quantity over quality, Why aren't the Rangers insisting on one of the top prospects? And why don't they move on to another trade partner uh, to get a semi-fair return? Now, Ken, this assumes that it was a bad trade, which I've seen plenty of people have said the Rangers actually got a pretty good haul in the two players from the Yankees. But go ahead. There are plenty of instances in this sport where you can point to the disparity between big money teams and lesser revenue teams and say, man, this should be fixed. The trade deadline is not one of them. (laughs) I kind of don't see where the question is coming from. 
if you go to the deadline, look at what actually happened. The Rays, one of the poorest teams in the sport, acquired Nelson Cruz. The Oakland Athletics got Starling Marte, with the Marlins paying his whole salary. They also acquired Josh Harrison and Jan Gomes and Andrew Chafin. It's pretty good hauls for teams that don't have much money. They were creative. They figured out ways to get this done. In the Yankees trade, it wasn't as if the Yankees told the Rangers, you have to do this. We're the big money team. You've got to send us Joey Gallo, and we're going to give you what we want. The Rangers had the right and did negotiate with a number of other teams. And yes, they did pick up the entirety of Gallo's salary for this season. And that was surprising. You don't normally see the Yankees needing that kind of assistance, but they were trying to stay under the luxury tax threshold. And as you said, Tim, the package that the Rangers got, no, it did not include any of the Yankees' biggest prospects, but they did get several guys that people are at least intrigued by and some who are quite highly regarded. So I thought they did fine, and these are difficult circumstances. Teams are reluctant to give up top prospects in almost every circumstance. We saw it happen a few times at this deadline, but only because star players are traded. So I don't see where the disparity at the deadline comes in. In fact, what we saw was some low-revenue teams doing some interesting things. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, the next couple of questions, both about the San Francisco Giants. First one is more big picture. It's from Raymond. He says, I have a question regarding lopsided trades. Farhan Zaidi seems to win a majority of the trades he makes by a considerable margin. Do teams eventually stop fielding calls from GMs and presidents that consistently get good value for their trade pieces? Or do teams hold a grudge against certain opposing personnel when they get fleeced on a trade? Or do they look at prospects and players in a potential trade differently if a successful GM is the one asking about them? These are good questions, and I'm yeah. sure a lot of fans wonder this a lot. And the bottom line is teams are looking to improve themselves. They're generally not worried about anything but that. So if you have a trade, let's say with the Giants, and you know Farhan Zaidi's got a great track record in trades, especially with some of those lesser deals, right? That's where he seems to find these guys who he gets for his team and are suddenly better players than you ever saw them before. Tampa Bay does the same thing. Teams don't stop trading with such clubs. Should they be more careful? Yeah, you hear this all the time with Tampa Bay. Don't take a pitcher that they're trading and don't trade them a pitcher. <laughs> and it seems to bear out, but it doesn't stop teams from going forward with those other clubs if they feel they can get what they want. So there are circumstances where there are relationships between certain clubs where you see more trades between them. Tampa Bay and Seattle make a lot of trades. Oakland and Washington make a lot of trades. Relationships, that kind of dynamic does matter. And I'm sure I can point you to some instances where a GM of, let's say, Team A says, I just can't deal with Team B. But in general, it doesn't preclude it at any time. And it's sort of like in free agency when teams will say, well, I don't like dealing with Scott Boris, for example. 
Well, you might not like dealing with Scott Boris, but if he's got a player you want, you've got to deal with Scott Boris. So it's very similar to that, and I don't know the teams are ever just closing off any outlets to improve. And I think teams have high opinions of themselves that they're actually not getting fleeced at the moment, too, right? That's part. <laughs> That's exactly right, Tim. Uh, <laughs> Andrew Moresco. They're not seeing it that way. Yeah, Andrew Moresco has the next question, also about the Giants. This one more specific. I watched this week unfold while almost every other contending team made deals and the Giants sat still. Luckily, we made the trade right at the deadline for Chris Bryant. I personally feel that Bryant was the best offensive choice that we could have made because he fits in well with the team that Gabe Kapler has put together and the versatility that the roster has. Plus, we really didn't part with any major prospects along the way. My question for you, Ken, is would you have approached the deadline the same way with the Giants or would you have done things differently? Andrew, first things first. I know fans sometimes get antsy when their teams aren't doing something necessarily right away at the deadline and other teams are getting better. And certainly with the Giants, the Dodgers made their big move. The Giants had not. The Padres had already acquired Adam Frazier. We knew they were in the mix for bigger things as well. And Giants fans were sitting there saying, what are we doing? But it's like a game. It cannot be judged until the final score is in. And actually with trades, it cannot be judged really for many years after that. So, the Giants ultimately got the piece that you identified as the one that they really needed, Chris Bryant. Farhan Zaidi had talked in the weeks leading to the deadline about the possible need for rotation help, that the idea of upgrading would be helpful to that team simply from a depth standpoint. They've got a really good rotation, but all teams fear some attrition right now. Well... Ultimately, it was difficult to get a starter. And the other thing that happened with the Giants is that Logan Webb has been really good uh, of late. So they've got five now that are really performing at a high level for the most part. And to get another one, it would have been a little bit difficult to fit in. You could say, well, what about the bullpen? Bullpen's been really good. Jake McGee, since June 1st, going into Sunday, 20 and two-thirds consecutive innings without allowing an earned run, 10 for Tave in save opportunities during that time opponents OPS during that time this is again since June 1st 308 that's the OPS the combined on base slugging percentage 308 so he's been really good at the back end that would seemingly eliminate or at least reduce the desire for a Craig Kimbrell type Tyler Rogers has been one of the better relievers in the league all year and the rest of their bullpen has performed extremely well they're right at the top of the rankings in ERA Opponents' OPS, not so good on inherited runners, but overall, hard to argue. So, Bryant is an ideal piece because the Giants can fit him in, move him around, play him in different positions. The one thing they do that is the envy of the league is match up with their players on a given day for platoon purposes or otherwise. And they'll be able to do that to an even greater extent with Bryant. Yeah, Brian, it's going to be fun to see him. Weird, but fun to see him in a Giants uniform. All right, next question comes from voicemail. Hi, guys. This is Jake. I'm calling from Pittsburgh. Since I know this will be airing after the trade deadline, and there only seems to be about 12 to 13 teams that are actually pushing to make the playoffs, what's the rest of the season like for the remaining teams? Are they mostly focused on player development? Do they have other things in mind if they've recently acquired? What does the rest of the season look like for them. Jake, a lot of fans are asking that right now. 
And if you're a fan of the Nationals and the Cubs and some of the other teams that are already struggling before the deadline or were already struggling, you're wondering, okay, what the heck happens from August 1st to the end of the year? Certainly development and looking at younger players is one thing, and that will only accelerate at September 1st when the rosters expand. And then the other part of it is simply trying to win some games. And I know we don't always think of that, but that is the way we should think. The goal of any season, believe it or not, the way some teams act, is to win as many games as possible. Now, what does it matter if you're out of it and there's nothing that's going to come of your postseason chances? There's still value in finishing a season with momentum. There's still value in learning how to win, in players coming together and all of that. It might sound trite to some extent, but again, it's one of these intangible things that I think actually is sort of overlooked at times. So, yes, there is something to play for. It's certainly not as meaningful as a postseason run. I'm not going to sit here and tell you otherwise. But there are always things teams are looking at, always players that they are evaluating. That process is ongoing, and that's what the final two months are for. All right, back to email. This one from Nick says, well, the trade deadline has come and gone, and the Cardinals have gotten, this is a little harsh, two washed-up starting pitchers in Jay Happ and John Lester. Happ spotting a 6.77 ERA, Lester having an ERA of 502. Are you confused why the Cardinals would go get these two arms? It's not like we're going to make the playoffs, and I would have rather seen the Cardinals hold Pat when they get these two players. John Mazalock's seat should be heating up, right? I feel like he made these moves to just say, I didn't stand Pat at the trade deadline. Thoughts? I don't agree with that, Nick. And granted, they were not splashy, whoa, we're going to go to the postseason now type moves. But we know what has happened with the Cardinals' rotation. Flaherty, Michaelis, Hudson, one injury after another, and it kind of put them in position where they had to force Johan Oviedo to the majors, option him up and down, and they wanted a little bit more stability. And that's why they acquired Lester and Happ. They didn't view them as transformative kinds of pieces, but they viewed them as stopgaps until some of these injured pitchers get back, like Flaherty and Michaelis, hopefully within the next few weeks. And frankly, they just wanted innings and stability and experience. Now, The bigger picture you're asking is, okay, well, what about this team? They've been disappointing, which is true, over a few years now. And that is a larger question. And some of the moves that Mosellac has made certainly have not worked out, mostly in long-term contracts, but also some trades as well. Randy Rosarena is the outstanding one, right? But I don't know that they are going to look to make a change anytime soon. Bill DeWitt, their owner, seems happy with at least the front office and the way they go about it. So they've got some questions. And Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt are not getting younger. Those are their two big pieces on the corners. They have to get more offense. They've got to get a more stable starting rotation. A lot of things have to happen. They've got to figure out why their pitchers get hurt so often, among other things. But I don't know that the seat is all that hot right now. It might be from a fan's perspective. I get it. But I don't know that the owner is thinking like that. Yeah, he's been there so long and had so much success in St. Louis. Obviously, a, a downturn right now. All right, back to email we go. This is the last deadline question, deadline-related question. It's more about the nuts and bolts from Jim Camisa. Why is the trade deadline tied to a particular day, July 30th or 31st, rather than a specific point in the season that won't vary from year to year? Seems to me it should be the Monday eight weeks before the season ends, or seven or nine. 
If it's on a Monday, the game schedule could be limited so that the trades get more attention and the teams have more time to adjust. Same with September 1st call-ups. It should just be the Friday before Labor Day or the Friday four weeks before the end of the season. I think this question's a little nitpicky myself. (laughs) And no disrespect, but essentially, the season generally starts around April 1st, generally ends around September 30th. You might have a day or two on either end And the deadline is what it is, right? July 30th or July 31st. I just don't see much difference. Now, the one thing about the calendar, at least this year, that was interesting. A lot of people said, well, what are they doing? Why July 30th? It's always July 31st. One year it was August 1st. Why July 30th? And the reason was they didn't want it to be on a Saturday. Of course, July 30th was a Friday. With some day games taking place and then players having to be pulled off the field because they're traded. I don't know why that was such a deterrent. There were only a handful of day games. I think it was three. And it wouldn't have been a big deal. And actually, seeing players pulled off the field is one of the better parts of the trade deadline. Hug watch and all that. But that's the decision that they made. It was all night games on July 30th. So that is the one thing that they look at. But in terms of moving it to an eight-week or some kind of definitive number there... I just don't think it would make that much of a difference. We might, we're talking about a day or two either way. I will say this, Ken. It used to be midnight Eastern. Now it's 4 Eastern. That was a huge improvement on the trade deadline. I'm sure you agree. Uh, yeah, that's a major difference, yes. <laughs> All right, back to voicemails we go. This one uh, from St. Louis. Hey, this is Jacob from St. Louis. My question was about the A's and a potential move to Vegas. Hypothetically, let's say everything goes uh, goes through the way they'd like it to. The team relocates to Vegas, gets a nice new stadium somewhere uh, in the desert. Do you think that changes the A's strategy about keeping talent and maybe trying to be more aggressive in signing free agents and making trades? Uh, I'm wondering if that move opens up the budget for the organization so that they can start trying to uh, to win with a little more cash. Jacob, I would say that it had better. That's the whole point, right? To go to Las Vegas or some other location and put themselves in a better position with regard to revenue than they have been in Oakland. Now, this can happen in Oakland, too. It's not out of the question if they could ever get a stadium figured out. More revenue from a new ballpark anywhere would seemingly benefit the way the team operates. And obviously, once you have that in place, whether it's in Oakland or in Las Vegas or Portland or anywhere else, then you have not the guarantee of revenue, but the assurance that revenues are going to increase and you can manage your team differently unless as an owner, you're simply saying, we're going to pocket all this money, which I don't think would be the idea. So yes, once they have this resolved, whether it's in Oakland or Vegas or somewhere else, at that point, you would think They would want to build momentum toward the opening of that park. We've seen this in many other circumstances. When teams open new parks, they want to go into that park on the rise. Baltimore Orioles, they were that way back in the early 90s with Camden Yards. Cleveland was maybe the best example when they opened what was then Jacobs Field. They built the team to kind of reach a crescendo as the park opened. So yes, if the A's ever get this resolved, It should help them. It should lead to a better revenue stream, more money in the payroll and all of that. I was not going to say better managed team because they're pretty well managed. It's amazing what they do with such low revenues. Playoffs six of the last nine years. 
just success overall amid great challenges. Yeah, you wonder what some of those past teams could have done if they had had a little more money to spend at the deadline in the offseason to build them up for sure. All right, one last question on the voicemail. Hey, guys, this is Ben stationed at Fort Benning, Georgia. I just had a quick question about the Tigers. Um, so, uh, A.J. Hinch, um, I think that he should be at least in the conversation for AL Manager of the Year considering the uh, the uh, just void of talent on that roster of the, t- of the of the Tigers as well as what he's been able to get out of the uh, – the younger players. Um, so I just can't, I just want to get your, uh, get your input on that. What you think about him for that? Um, yeah. Thank you guys for what you do. I appreciate it. Ben, no argument. AJ Hinch has done a terrific job with the Tigers entered Sunday, 50 and 57, seven games under 500. Yes, but clearly there is some progress there, especially with the young starting pitching. Now the AL manager of the year is going to be extremely tight. And it's so funny. I remember a GM once telling me, you guys with manager of the year, you guys meaning the writers, what you do, you set the expectations by picking teams where you pick them, and then the guys who prove you wrong are obviously the smartest because they did things with a team that you didn't expect. It's actually not an unfair criticism (laughs) of the way we go about manager of the year, but it is often the way it's chosen. Now, in my opinion right now, Alex Cora is the clear front runner, but not the only worthy choice. Alex Cora has had a great year with the Red Sox. It's a different team than it was last year. Obviously, they were affected by the protocols and everything going on with COVID-19, and Ron Renicky was kind of a placeholder as it turned out for Alex Cora, and the team just wasn't in a good place. He brought back his aggressiveness that we saw in 18, the fearlessness with which he manages, it translates to the way they play. So for me right now, he's the manager of the year. But you can't overlook LaRusa. I'm sorry. You cannot overlook what he has done with the White Sox despite the occasional missteps. They've had an unbelievable run despite some serious injuries to key players. So he's done a terrific job just holding it together. Dusty Baker? Astros have played without Bregman for long stretches. They've also had some challenges. Kevin Cash, the Rays, they lose Glass now. I mean, yeah, they lose Glass now. They lose Morton in the offseason along with Snell, and here they are. So all of these managers are worthy of this award. Right now, I think Cora is the front runner. Hinch, because his team is not going to be a playoff team, probably will be looking at the outside, but certainly everyone respects the job he has done. Interesting that Hinch and Cora both right there. It just shows that, you know, they had to obviously sit a year out, the suspension, all of that that came from the scandal. But they are very, very good managers, and, and you can see why they were rehired so quickly. Uh, thank you so much for getting your questions in. If you want to be a part of the show next week, the email is tabaseballshow at gmail.com. We prefer to hear your voice, though. Call the line at 646-543-7072, and you can talk directly to us. So, Ken... All-star game in the rearview mirror. We're through the trade deadline. It's two months of baseball. You excited? Really excited. And there are going to be some interesting races as we go forward. Some are decided. There's no doubt about that. But the AL East, the NL West, the NL wild card, the AL wild card, 
it's going to be pretty fascinating stuff as we go forward. And we'll have all of it for you here on the Athletic Baseball Show all week long over the next two months and three months and through the playoffs and all of that. Tomorrow on Starkville, it's a good one. You definitely want to tune in. Ray's general manager, Eric Neander, joining Jason and Doug on that show. He'll talk about the trade deadline that was and what the Rays did, what they didn't do, and everything else involved in the trade deadline. On Thursday, it's Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby on the Baseball Barista. And then on Friday, Derek Van Riper and Keith Law, keep you covered. Um, stay with us. I mentioned it earlier, but you can save 33% on an annual subscription to The Athletic. Go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. Ken, have a great week. You too, Tim. Thank you. For Ken Rosenthal, I'm Tim McMaster. Have a great week to everybody out there as well.